Section 137 of Chesterfield's Letters to His Son Read for LibriVox.org into the public domain. Letter 168 London, May 31st, Old Style, 1752 My dear friend, The world is the book, and the only one to which, at present, I would have you apply yourself, and the thorough knowledge of it will be of more use to you than all the books that ever were read. Lay aside the best book whenever you can go into the best company, and depend upon it, you change for the better. However, as the most tumultuous life, whether of business or pleasure, leaves some vacant moments every day, in which a book is the refuge of a rational being, I now mean to point out to you the method of employing those moments, which will and ought to be but few, in the most advantageous manner. Throw away none of your time upon those trivial, futile books, published by idle or necessitous authors, for the amusement of idle and ignorant readers. Such sort of books swarm and buzz about one every day. Flap them away, they have no sting. Certum pet finem. Have some one object for those leisure moments, and pursue that object invariably till you have attained it, and then take some other. For instance, considering your destination, I would advise you to single out the most remarkable and interesting eras of modern history, and confine all your reading to that era. If you pitch upon the Treaty of Munster, and that is the proper period to begin with, in the course which I am now recommending, do not interrupt it by dipping and deviating into other books, unrelative to it, but consult only the most authentic histories, letters, memoirs, and negotiations, relative to that great transaction, reading and comparing them with all that caution and distrust which Lord Bolingbroke recommends to you, in a better manner and in better words than I can. The next period worth your particular knowledge is the Treaty of the Pyrenees, which was calculated to lay, and in effect did lay, the succession of the House of Bourbon to the Crown of Spain. Pursue that in the same manner, singling, out of the millions of volumes written upon that occasion, the two or three most authentic ones, and particularly the letters, which are the best authorities in matters of negotiation. Next come the treaties of Nimagun and Nrissic, postscripts in, in a manner to those of Munster and the Pyrenees. Those two transactions have had great light thrown upon them by the publication of many authentic and original letters and pieces. The concessions made at the Treaty of Wissick, by the then triumphant Louis the Fourteenth, astonished all those who viewed things only superficially, but I should think must have been easily accounted for by those who knew the state of the kingdom of Spain, as well as of the health of its king, Charles the Second, at that time. The interval between the conclusion of the peace of Ryswick and the breaking out of the great war in 1702, though a short, is a most interesting one. Every week of it almost produced some great event. Two partition treaties, the death of the king of Spain, his unexpected will, and the acceptance of it by Louis the Fourteenth, in violation of the second treaty of partition, just signed and ratified by him. Philip V quietly and cheerfully received in Spain, and acknowledged as king of it, by most of those powers, who afterwards joined in an alliance to dethrone him. I cannot help making this observation upon that occasion, that character has often more to do in great transactions than prudence and sound policy, for Louis the Fourteenth gratified his personal pride by giving a Bourbon king to Spain, at the expense of the true interest of France, 
which would have acquired much more solid and permanent strength by the addition of Naples, Sicily, and Lorraine, upon the footing of the Second Partition Treaty. And I think it was fortunate for Europe that he preferred the will. It is true he might hope to influence his Bourbon posterity in Spain. He knew too well how weak the ties of blood are among men, and how much weaker still they are among princes. The memoirs of Count Herac and of La Torres give a good deal of light into the transactions of the court of Spain, previous to the death of that weak king, and the letters of the Marechal d'Arcourt, then the French ambassador in Spain, of which I have authentic copies in manuscript, from the year 1698 to 1701, have cleared up that whole affair to me. I keep that book for you. It appears by those letters that the impudent conduct of the House of Austria, with regard to the King and Queen of Spain, and Madame Berlip, her favourite, together with the knowledge of the partition treaty, which incensed all Spain, were the true and only reasons of the will in favour of the Duke of Anjou. Cardinal Portocarrero, nor any of the grandees, were bribed by France, as was generally reported and believed at that time, which confirms Voltaire's anecdote upon that subject. Then opens a new scene and a new country. Louis the Fourteenth's good fortune forsakes him, till the Duke of Marlborough and Prince Eugene make him amends for all the mischief they had done him, by making the Allies refuse the terms of peace offered by him at Grutudenberg. How the disadvantageous peace of Utrecht was afterward brought on, you have lately read, and you cannot inform yourself too minutely of all those circumstances, that treaty being the freshest source from whence the late transactions of Europe have flowed. The altercations that have since happened, whether by wars or treaties, are so recent, that all the written accounts are to be helped out, proved, or contradicted, by the oral ones of almost every informed person, of a certain age or rank in life. For the facts, dates, and original pieces of this century, you will find them in Lamberti, till the year 1715, and after that time in Rousset's Recule. I do not mean that you should plod hours together in researches of this kind, no, you may employ your time more usefully, but I mean that you should make the most of the moments you do employ, by method and the pursuit of one single object at a time. Nor should I call it a digression from that object, when you meet with clashing and jarring pretensions of different princes to the same thing, you had immediately recourse to other books, in which those several pretensions were clearly stated. On the contrary, that is the only way of remembering those contested rights and claims, for, were a man to read toute suite Scherdewis's Theatrum Prensononium, Schroederus's Theatrum Pretensionum, he would only be confounded by the variety, and remember none of them. Whereas by examining them occasionally, as they happen to occur, either in the course of your historical reading, or as they are agitated in your own times, you will retain them, by connecting them with those historical facts which occasioned your inquiry. For example, had you read in the course of two or three folios of pretensions, those, among others, of the two kings of England and Prussia to Oostfries, it is impossible that you should have remembered them. But now that they are become the debated object at the Diet at Ratisbonne, and the topic of all political conversations, if you consult both books and persons concerning them, and inform yourself thoroughly, you will never forget them as long as you live. You will hear a great deal of them on one side at Hanover, and as much on the other side afterward at Berlin. Hear both sides, and form your own opinion, but dispute with neither. 
letters from foreign ministers to their courts, and from their courts to them, are, if genuine, the best and most authentic records you can read, as far as they go. Cardinal Dossatz, President Genin's, Destrades, Sir William Temple's, will not only inform your mind, but form your style, which in letters of business should be very plain and simple, but at the same time exceedingly clear, correct, and pure. All that I have said may be reduced to these two or three plain principles. First, that you should now read very little, but converse a great deal. Second, to read no useless, unprofitable books. And third, that those which you do read may all tend to a certain object, and be relative to, and consequential of each other. In this method, half an hour's reading every day will carry you a great way. People seldom know how to employ their time to the best advantage till they have too little left to employ. But if at your age, in the beginning of life, people would but consider the value of it, and put every moment to interest, it is incredible what an additional fund of knowledge and pleasure such an economy would bring in. I look back with regret upon that large sum of time, which in my youth I lavished away idly, without either improvement or pleasure. Take warning betimes, and enjoy every moment. Pleasures do not commonly last so long as life, and therefore should not be neglected, and the longest life is too short for knowledge. Consequently, every moment is precious. I am surprised at having received no letter from you since you left Paris. I still direct this to Strasbourg, as I did my two last. I shall direct my next to the post-house at Mayence, unless I receive, in the meantime, contrary instructions from you. Adieu. Remember les attentions. They must be your passports into good company. End of section 137. Read by Professor Heather and By. For more free audiobooks or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org.